Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 15th. It's Caucus Day in Iowa. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. The lead story on the front page of the Courier today is about the Iowa caucuses, titled From Retail to Wholesale. Iowa Process Evolves from Small Gatherings to Enormous Spectacles. This story was written by Tom Barton and Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, and it begins with a photograph of a big crowd in front of a stage with the banner, Make America Great Again. The caption says, Former President Donald Trump speaks at an Iowa Commit to Caucus event at the Waterloo Convention Center on December 19th. As interest in the Iowa caucus campaigns has grown both from within the state's borders and beyond, and as the caucuses themselves have grown, small gatherings of the past have given way to large town halls and rallies, like this one in Waterloo. Dateline, Dubuque. Doug Burgum and his wife stood in front of a large stone fireplace surrounded by Native American decor at the home of Ron and Rebecca Herrig outside Dubuque. Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, and then a Republican candidate for president, was the featured guest at the mid-November reception, which was hosted by Republican Party of Iowa Chair Jeff Kaufman, addressing a group of about 30 people as they munched on small deli sandwiches and hors d'oeuvres piled on paper plates. Bergen talked about his rural upbringing and small-town roots, and his business background as a former software firm chief and Microsoft executive. He talked about the economy, energy, and national security, and warned of China being the nation's number one threat. It was the kind of intimate setting, an individual seeking the highest office in the country and one of the most powerful positions in the world, talking to just a few people in someone's living room. That has come to define the Iowa caucuses over the last five decades. But intimate caucus gatherings like this one are becoming increasingly scarce, as interest in the caucus campaigns has grown both from within the state's borders and beyond, and as the caucuses themselves have grown. Small gatherings have given way to large town halls and rallies. Quote, Events like this are critically important because this is how Iowa caucuses have been won and lost, Burgum said in Dubuque, quote, in which small groups of people that care deeply, you can look you in the eye, shake your hand, make the measure of that person and say, is this person someone I want to hear more from? Is this someone we should try to support to go forward? Unquote. And so they're critically important particularly for someone like us, said Burgum, who entered the race late, launching his 2024 bid in June and was among the least well-known candidates in the field. That personal pitch, meeting voters in cozy living rooms, backyards, and restaurants, while taking questions about immigration, ethanol, and farm subsidies, which has made a difference in previous caucuses between well- and lesser-known candidates, has been upended in recent caucus cycles. Burgum suspended his campaign three weeks later after he failed to meet polling and fundraising thresholds 
set by the National Party to qualify for the fourth GOP primary debate. He also failed to make the debate stage the month before. Joe Van Ginkle, chair of the Madison County Republicans, remembers his first Republican caucus in 2002, which was a, w- a year without a presidential primary. Quote, we had eight people at a dining room table, Van Ginkle said. Just six years later, in 2008, all of Madison County's precincts were moved to the same spot, winners at high school. Those caucuses were, quote, a bin buster, he said. Quote, it was above the fire code, Van Ginkle said, and I don't know what it's going to look like this year, but I expect it to be a pretty good turnout, unquote. Democratic National Committee member Scott Brennan, a Des Moines lawyer and past chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, said he started to see the slide away from intimate gatherings with candidates in Iowa's living rooms to larger town halls and rallies, starting with that same 2008 caucus cycle, when then-Illinois Senator Barack Obama won the Iowa Democratic caucuses in a historic victory that ultimately set him on the road to the White House. Quote, and I don't know how you ever go back to that pure retail nature, he said. You have to do big events because people expect it. And, frankly, the media expects the big events, and so then it drives turnout. Because the campaign's terrified that they're going to do an event and media show up, and there's only 15 people, unquote. A year of chaos. Stephen Smith, an emeritus professor of political science at Iowa State University, has written about and watched the caucuses evolve since the 1970s. Quote, this year has been a year of chaos for both the Democrats and the Republicans, Schmidt said, with separate storms sweeping across those political parties, unquote. The first storm being former President Donald Trump and the other, the National Democrats, booting Iowa from its early nominating spot in their effort to redesign the nominating calendar to better represent the party's demographics. Iowa Democrats will hold party-organizing precinct caucuses Monday, the same day as Republicans, but they will express their presidential preference using a new mail-in process and won't announce results until March 5th. Trump has built a dominating and possibly insurmountable 32-point lead in Iowa polling. Trump has achieved this despite spending, relative to other Republican candidates, a sliver of the time campaigning in the state. Quote, I've never seen anything like it, Smith said, of Trump's dominating lead in Iowa, despite shunning the typical retail politics leading up to caucus night. Quote, Donald Trump is not a normal political candidate, Schmidt said. Quote, Donald Trump is a personality, a phenomenon. He's more like a movement. And so you can't assess the caucuses like you have in past years, unquote. Trump can command overwhelming support without having to campaign extensively, given his universally known persona and brand, and ability to command media attention, said Doug Gross, a prominent GOP lawyer in Des Moines, who chaired Mitt Romney's 2008 presidential effort in Iowa. Trump's multiple criminal indictments, including 
over efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election and lawsuits seeking to remove him from the primary ballot in other states have only emboldened his supporters who see him as a victim of political persecution. Organization critical. While Trump defies conventional logic, not holding town halls or taking questions from voters, the kind of retail campaigning that has been a hallmark for presidential campaigns in Iowa, the caucuses are still all about organization. To dominate in the actual caucuses, as he has in the polls, requires turning out supporters to sit in schools, churches, and community halls on what is often a blistery cold night, listen to others make brief speeches in support of their candidate, and cast their vote for Trump. Quote, in 2016, he relied almost totally on his brand, said Gross, who recently endorsed former South Carolina governor and GOP rival Nikki Haley. Quote, this time, Trump has a very strong ground game, unquote. Trump lost the Iowa GOP caucuses in 2016 to better organized U.S. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Trump's 2024 campaign now has built an expansive network of hundreds of caucus captains, recruiting their neighbors to participate for the first time and serve as campaign precinct representatives on caucus night. At recent events, before Trump takes the stage, videos detailing how to caucus played as volunteers collected commit-to-caucus cards signed by attendees. Trump has replaced what was a scattershot campaign in 2016 with a more organized effort focused on turning out first-time caucus-goers and gathering and using detailed data about the former president's supporters in the state. Quote, if Trump comes out with a significant victory, which I suspect, it will reaffirm the special nature of the Iowa caucuses and the importance of organizing to win the caucuses and not just flying in and doing tarmac campaigns. I don't think that goes away, Gross said. Kaufman, the Republican Party of Iowa chair, noted while Trump has not campaigned as extensively in Iowa as other candidates, he still has held more and smaller events in the state than in 2016 and is blitzing the state in the final week leading up to Monday's caucuses. Kaufman also noted the emphasis other candidates like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Ohio biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy have placed on visiting every county as well as the frenzied activity of their campaigns here and Haley's in the last stretch. Quote, one thing about Iowans, we really appreciate when people take time to care and to think about us, he said. Yes, there are a few of those trends that in and of themselves might be looked at as a shift away from retail politics. But I'm actually still comfortable with the localized nature of this year's caucuses, Kaufman said. And should Trump pull off a landslide victory, quote, I would still argue that Iowa did its job if these other individuals had a chance to make their case, Kaufman said. Schmidt, the ISU professor, and Gross predict the retail aspect of the Iowa caucuses will become more important in future cycles. Quote, because you're not going to have someone like Trump with that large of a national brand 
that can forego it, Gross said. Quote, who finishes second in Iowa is extremely important, and the only way to do that is through a strong organizational and retail political effort, he said. So it still matters. It just doesn't matter as much, unquote. DeSantis bet his campaign on retail campaigning in Iowa. He visited all 99 counties in the state, fiercely courted its socially conservative voters, and secured the backing of its popular Republican governor. He played baseball at the Field of Dreams in Dyersville, ate Dutch letters in Pella, and visited the world's largest popcorn ball in Sac City. The visits have been part of DeSantis's all-in strategy in Iowa, as he hoped a caucus upset would catapult him to a dominant position in the national primary. But, despite his aggressive efforts, he remains far behind Trump in recent polling. Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under Trump, has a wider path to eventually victory in the nomination, holding a clear second place in her home state and in New Hampshire. Trailing even further behind Trump is Ramaswamy, who recently celebrated visiting each Iowa county twice during his campaign. Texas Pastor Ryan Binkley, the first among the 2024 candidates to visit every county in the state, is polling at literally 0% among likely Iowa Republican caucus-goers. Stealing Iowa's Thunder Bergen poured millions of his own dollars into his campaign, but lacked the national name recognition of his primary rivals, and failed to raise his profile following his appearances in the first two debates. Burgum said the RNC's arbitrary criteria undercut the long-standing role and value of the caucuses in a small state with cheap media markets and an emphasis on in-person organizing that gave lesser-known candidates and new ideas a voice and kept a party's nomination competitive. Quote, the RNC's clubhouse debate requirements are nationalizing the primary process and taking the power of democracy away from the engaged, thoughtful citizens of Iowa and New Hampshire, Bergen said in a statement. The RNC's mission is to win elections. It is not their mission to reduce competition and restrict fresh ideas by narrowing the field month before the Iowa caucuses or the first in the nation New Hampshire primary, unquote. Roger Helmrichs, chair of the Delaware County Republicans, said he feels the candidates' focus on qualifying for the debates came at the cost of campaigning in Iowa. However, Helmrichs said he also understands to a degree why the National Party set debate qualifying requirements. Quote, I agree there should be some qualifications, but I think their qualifications are a bit stringent, Helmrich said. Iowa's role. The Iowa caucuses have a history of dramatic, late-breaking twists. Past winners, such as former Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Rick Santorum and Cruz, didn't rise in the polls until the final weeks. This year's race, however, has felt very different. Trump continues to hold an enduring and unshakable lead, and a clear alternative has yet to emerge. Iowa has a spotty record at picking the eventual nominee. George W. Bush 
was the last non-incumbent Republican president to win the Iowa caucuses and secure the party's nomination in 2000. Quote, I think that's good. I think it's good because all of these candidates need to know here in Iowa that they don't have to win the state to make it worthwhile to put their investments in that state, Kaufman said. He continued, Iowa doesn't pick presidents. We were never supposed to do that. Rather, Iowa's role is to winnow a large field to a small group of contenders who have proved that they are the most viable candidates. Quote, all we're supposed to do is highlight these candidates, and I still believe that there are two or three tickets out of Iowa to get the boost your campaign needs to continue on to compete for the GOP nomination, Kaufman said. Optimism for Democrats. As for what happens to the Iowa Democratic caucuses moving forward, Brennan believes the party will retain some vestige of its mail-in process for 2028. Quote, but all bets are off as to the timing and everything else, he said. Quote, we are doing the process we're doing this time because the DNC has demanded it, and we think it is good for a lot of folks in Iowa to participate. And if they participate, and the turnout is appropriate, I think, you know, we could do a component of that again. But I think we would mix that with some sort of in-person process. That would be my preference, unquote. Schmidt said he believes once the 2024 political storm is over, National Democrats will suddenly realize that they destroyed something that was extremely valuable, very successful, and pretty democratic in the sense that people tried very hard to bring their neighbors to the neighborhood caucus. Quote, and I think Iowa Democrats will regain their coveted first-in-the-nation presidential caucus status, he said. I really do, unquote. Next, defense argues for new trial in fatal 2022 Waterloo House fire, story filed by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo. The decision to allow or deny a new trial for a Denver man accused of killing his friend in a Waterloo house fire is now in the hands of a judge. And the article opens with a photograph of the defendant and his attorney sitting at a table. Above them, a large TV screen showing a Zoom-like presentation of various participants in the trial. The caption under the photograph reads, John Spooner left and defense attorney Nicole Watt listened to testimony from experts on a video link on Thursday. Prosecutors allege John Walter Spooner, 60, doused the front porch of a 60-year-old Tony Lewis Grider's East 2nd Street home with gasoline and sparked a blaze, trapping Grider in an upstairs bedroom and killing him in August 2022. A Black Hawk County jury found Spooner guilty of arson in November of 2022. He is also awaiting trial for murder. On Thursday, private fire investigators challenged the state's account, claiming their analysis of the scene pointed to the possibility the fatal fire started inside the house, perhaps under a couch in the living room or with an electrical outlet in the same room. John Latini with Forensic Fire Analysis Institute, 
testified via video link that he tested samples of gasoline found in a gas can Spooner was seen hurling from the porch against samples from the porch deck. Lentini said he compared molecular weights from the two samples and concluded the gas in the can wasn't the same as the gas from the burn site. Also appearing by video link was Douglas Carpenter of Combustion Science and Engineering Incorporated, who said he concluded the fire started in the living room, breached a window, and spread to the porch where it took off. Fire Marshal Brock Welliver, who originally investigated the fire for Waterloo Fire Rescue, took the stand for the state to back his findings that the blaze started on the porch. Welliver said the porch had the heaviest fire damage, leading to his conclusion the fire started there and then worked its way inside. He said the living room outlet, suspected by the defense experts, wasn't destroyed by the fire, and there were still parts of the couch that survived the inferno. If the fire had started with the couch, Welliver said, it would be gone. He said he considered the couch, but ruled it out. Welliver also said the interior of the home had a large fuel load, possessions that could catch fire, but the interior items weren't consumed by fire as items on the porch were. Those interior items also included other gas cans, he said. Welliver also noted Spooner had told police he noticed the fire on the porch and claimed he had tried to extinguish it. Judge David Odekirk will rule on the issue of a new trial at a later date. Stoplights at fatal crash were covered by snow. Story filed by Jeff Reinitz and begins with a photograph of a smashed up blue van and we see a police car parked behind and a police officer walking next to the scene. The blue SUV has apparent front-end damage, and the caption for the photograph says, Police are investigating a two-vehicle crash at the Broadway Street and U.S. Highway 218 interchange in Waterloo on Wednesday. Dateline Waterloo. Stoplights at the scene of a Waterloo crash that claimed the life of a Dunkerton woman were covered by snow, according to the accident report. Officers on the scene noted the southbound traffic lights were covered in snow, and the red lights were not visible, the report states. The Wednesday morning crash came a day after a winter storm that included blowing snow. Police said Dorothy Jane Adamson, 71, died at the scene of injuries in the crash at Broadway Street and Airport Boulevard near the George Wythe State Park entrance shortly before noon on Wednesday. Dorothy Adamson was a passenger in a Chevrolet Traverse driven by her husband, 72-year-old Dennis Lee Adamson of Dunkerton. Dennis Adamson was transported to Unity Point Health Allen Hospital with serious injuries, the report states. The other driver, 59-year-old Dennis Jean Child of Cedar Falls, was also taken to Unity Point Health Allen with serious injuries. Dennis Admanson was traveling south on Airport Boulevard when he allegedly ran a red light, the report states. His vehicle and Child's Chrysler Pacifica headed east on U.S. Highway 28 off-ramp 
Broadway Street, collided, the report states. Dennis Edmondson told police that his wife had noted the stoplights were covered in snow or weren't working and told him to slow down. He said they looked up the off-ramp for traffic and thought they were clear to go across the intersection, according to the report. Waterloo man gets 30-year term on drug ring charges. Story filed by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been sentenced to three decades behind bars for his role in a methamphetamine ring. Judge C.J. Williams sentenced Jeffrey Turner, 48, to 30 years in prison on charges of conspiracy to distribute meth and distribution of meth during a hearing in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids on January 5th. Following prison, Turner will be on supervised release for five years. Turner allegedly obtained meth from a Waterloo man who had obtained the drugs from Menaharis Drug Trafficking Organization in Sinaloa, Mexico. He also purchased meth from sources in Cedar Rapids and California between 2020 and 2022. He also sold meth, usually an ounce, for $550 to undercover operatives working with law enforcement twice during controlled transactions in February and March of 2022. Officers later searched Turner's supplier's vehicle and found $500 in recorded bills from one of the controlled buys among a $25,000 stash in March of 2022, according to court records. The case was prosecuted by Assistant U.S. Attorneys Adam J. Vanderstep, Patrick J. Reinhardt, and Dylan Edwards, and investigated by Tri-County Drug Enforcement Task Force, consisting of the Waterloo Police Department, the Iowa Division of Narcotics Enforcement, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Cedar Valley to hold service remembrance events on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Story written by Holly Hudson Hill. A number of area organizations have special events planned for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The Northeast Iowa Food Bank, in partnership with University of Northern Iowa's Office of Community Engagement and Panther Pantry, along with the Volunteer Center of Cedar Valley, will hold its annual Pack the Dome event at the Unidome on Monday. This event is expected to be the single largest volunteer event held in the Cedar Valley. Volunteers will fill backpacks for the Food Bank's Backpack Program. The program provides chronically hungry children with backpacks filled with non-perishable, nutritious, kid-friendly, shelf-stable food to sustain them over weekends and school holidays, according to the organization's website. Quote, the backpack program is a microcosm of why we're doing what we're doing, said Jared Fangenbaum, community engagement manager. Quote, we are making sure children in our communities who are food insecure will have food on the weekends. We distribute 100,000 backpacks every school year. The numbers are heartbreaking and confusing, but our goal is to serve every meal every day to everyone.
Quote, Pack the Dome is a complete community partnership, he said. The event does not run without everybody involved. The event is so unique because the aspect of celebrating and recognizing that community empowerment and purpose can come together and create effective change throughout the community. And here we have a photograph showing volunteers working around both sides of a long table, filling bags of food. And the caption says, Volunteers fill bags of food for the Northeast Iowa Food Bank during 2023's Pack the Dome event at the Unidorm. Quote, It's a great event, and we anticipate the community coming out year after year. It's a real staple, unquote. Our goal is to fill 60,000 bags in a small time frame, said Gannon Oberhauser, Community Engagement Coordinator. Quote, we hand out 2,200 bags each week, each school year. I think it's a great way to engage our community members and a great way for our volunteers to collaborate with other organizations in the Cedar Valley, unquote. Besides hosting the event, UNI takes the reins in setting up. According to Christina Kofut, Assistant Director for Community Engagement, student athletes, coaches, and staff will arrive at the Dome and begin setup, which takes one to two hours. Another group of athletes will hold a packing session in the morning, and then general volunteers will man the afternoon session. Quote, this is a very popular and positive event for the student-athletes, Kofut said. They like seeing their space being used in such an impactful way. Quote, it is quite an undertaking, but so worth it, she said. The VCCV is charged with finding volunteers for the event. And now, listeners, we'd just like to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 15th on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Kirsten J. Fleck, 54, of Independence, Iowa, and formerly of Marion, Iowa, died January 3, 2024, at Mercy One Old Wine Medical Center in Old Wine, Iowa, following a long battle with myotonic dystrophy. Memorial services will be 11 o'clock a.m. on Monday, January 15, at Hope Wesleyan Church in Independence. Burial will be at a later date at Mount Hope Cemetery in Independence. Visitation will be from 9 o'clock a.m. until service time Monday, January 15th at the church, and that service time is 11 o'clock a.m. Kirsten Janine Miller was born August 31, 1969, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the daughter of Lauren B. Miller and Carolyn Jean Winslow Miller. She grew up in Tipton, Iowa, and graduated from Tipton High School with the class of 1988. In her early years, she loved to take ballet classes at the University of Iowa, with the highlight of performing on stage during a school music program. 
She also liked to read and play board games. After high school, she attended Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and married Gabriel Gold. They would later divorce. Kristen worked as a customer service representative for APAC and eventually met Christopher Fleck. They were united in marriage on February 14, 1998, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. They made their home in Cedar Rapids before moving to Omaha, Nebraska, where Kirsten worked for the Marriott Corporation. As Kirsten's disease progressed, they decided to move to Marion, Iowa, to be closer to family, and in 2020, they made their home in Independence. Kirsten had lived with myotonic dystrophy since her diagnosis in high school, but she never let it slow her down or diminish her positive attitude. Kirsten and Chris would attend many Camp Farthest Out CFO events, which would help strengthen their relationship with God and build new relationships with friends. Kirsten enjoyed playing Sudoku, Ono, and watching her TV shows, especially General Hospital, Dr. Phil, Law and Order, SBU, and The Bachelorette. Christian radio and worship bands were always a part of her day. She was so excited to attend concerts when able, with the added highlights of having the band December Radios sign her cast, Michael Tate of Newsboys sing a song she requested, and Joel Smallborn from For King and Country gave her a hug. Kristen always had a smile on her face and easily found something to laugh about. Her grace, faith in Jesus, and determination to not let her disease define her encouraged more people than she could imagine. Always a cat fan, Kirsten will be missed by her cat, Shelby. Kirsten and Chris were members of Hope Wesleyan Church in Independence. Memorials may be directed to the Myotonic Dystrophy Foundation and the Association of Camps Farthest Out. The family would like to thank all the staff at Grandview Healthcare Center in Old Wine for their care and support of Kirsten in her short time living at the care center. Condolences may be placed at www.white-mounthome.com. White Funeral Home in Independence, Iowa, is in charge of arrangements. William Robinson Thrall, 94, of Cedar Falls, Iowa, passed away on December 15, 2023. Bill was born in Green Lake, Wisconsin, the son of Holland Mead and Gladys Robinson Thrall. He attended Green Lake High School, where he excelled in sports and dramatics. Bill worked five summers as a waterfront director and ARC Learn to Swim instructor. In the fall of 1947, he went to the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, graduating with a BS degree in physical education and recreation. Bill embraced university life and was rewarded by being named to who's who in American colleges and universities. He participated in sports, dance, and dramatics, and held numerous positions in campus organizations, including captain of the track team and president of his fraternity. After graduation in 1951, he served as a radar chief in the U.S. Army. Bill married his college sweetheart, Betty Coy, in 1952. 
They lived in Washington, D.C., while Bill finished his tour of duty. Thereafter, Bill earned an M.S. degree from the University of Colorado in 1954 and accepted the position of aquatics director and head swimming coach at Kansas State University. Two of their three children were born in Manhattan. After spending three summers at the University of Iowa, the family moved to Iowa City, Iowa, where Bill completed his Ph.D. in anatomical mechanical kinesiology. Dr. Thrall joined the Department of Physical Education for Men, ISTC, Cedar Falls, Iowa, in 1960. He was named head of the department in 1970 and assumed responsibility for its athletic, professional, and service programs. Bill served on three governor's councils on physical fitness and sport. He was a leader in coaching endorsement standards for the Iowa DPI. He was president of Beaver Hills Country Club. He was president of the Iowa Association for HPERD and received honor awards from the Iowa and Central District Associations. Dr. Thrall was also named to the UWL Hall of Excellence in 1989 and the UNI Intercollegiate Hall of Fame in 2022. Dr. Thrall served as founding director between 1979 and 1991 of the School of Health, Physical Education, and Leisure Services at UNI. He retired in 1991, but in recent years, he has worked with the UNI School of HPELS, Eleanor A. Crawford and William R. Thrall Hall of Excellence, that acknowledges former graduates who have distinguished themselves professionally. A celebration of life will be held on Saturday, January 20th at 1 o'clock p.m. at the Diamond Center at the Western Home Communities, 5313 Caraway Lane, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613. Memorials may be directed to UNI Foundation School of HPELS, Eleanor A. Crawford, William R. Thrall Hall of Excellence, or Cedar Valley Hospice. Emily Marie Kachulis, 53, died on Wednesday, January 10, 2024, at St. Mary's Hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. She was born on July 3, 1970, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, the daughter of Charles and Ruth Ann Shriver Kachulis. She graduated from Northern University High School and attended classes at the University of Northern Iowa. Emily loved dogs and was a mom to Sadie and Tula. She was also very artistic, painting and quilting. Many lucky people owned beautiful quilts that she made. She also worked as a volunteer at Birthright for a short time and was a member of PEO. Emily also loved children and has two godchildren named after her. She was the best aunt to her nieces and nephews and was so loved by her family. She also had many close friends and loved any kind of social gathering. Emily enjoyed traveling with her husband, Randy, and her friends and family. She especially loved the beach and Anna Maria Island. In spite of Emily's many health challenges over the years, she was always positive. When she was a baby, the doctors told her parents she might only live to be in her teens 
due to heart complications. She was fierce and fought every step of the way until 2011 when she checked herself into the Mayo Clinic to wait for a heart and lung transplant. She waited in the hospital for two months until she was given the true gift of life from her organ donor, Raul Patino, on November 6, 2011. Following the transplant, she had renewed life and was able to go for walks in the woods with her dog, something most of us take for granted, but she cherished. A celebration of life will be held between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock p.m. on Saturday, June 29, 2024, at Beaver Hills Country Club in Cedar Falls. A private family service will be held with Richardson Funeral Service. No memorials are requested. Online condolences may be left at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. Elna Christina Dyken, 90, was ushered into her heavenly home, surrounded by her children, on the evening of Saturday, January 6, 2024. She was born on June 15, 1933, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, to Danish immigrant parents Wilhelm and Kama Urup. She was raised on farms in the Fredsville area. She attended country school and graduated from Dyke High School in 1951. On June 20, 1951, Elna was united in marriage to the love of her life, Eldon, at Lincoln Center Christian Reformed Church in rural Grundy Center. From this union, the couple was blessed with four children, Brenda, Belinda, Bonita, and Randy. Early on in life, Elna was greatly impacted by a church message, which encouraged her to use up all of her God-given gifts so that when she reached her heavenly home, she arrived with an empty tank. She consequently lived her life with a true servant's heart. She lived life one person at a time, attentive, listening, and caring for each person she was with, whether family, friend, or stranger. She was an encourager and a selfless, compassionate woman. Her very humble demeanor impacted people in ways that she didn't even realize. She was hospitable, she was inclusive, and she loved the Lord with her whole heart and soul. She found great joy in the simple things in life. Elna loved the farm and farm life. She treasured her animals, her garden, and her flowers. Elna was an avid nature lover, and she loved to walk. She relished the sights and sounds of the outdoors. She was also an extremely creative woman. She sewed, did ceramics, refinished furniture, painted, and had a natural aptitude for crafting. Elna was also a great storyteller. There will be a celebration of life for Elna at Lincoln Township Cemetery, Rural Grundy Center, Iowa, at 2 o'clock p.m. on July 20th, 2024. Memorial contributions may be directed in Elna's name to her family, to be later donated to a charity of their choice. Iris L. Schaefer, 84, of Waterloo, died Tuesday, January 9th of 2024. She was born July 24, 1939, in Arlington, Iowa, the daughter of Thomas McGrain and Iva May Gradke Leonard. She graduated from East High School in 1957. Iris married 
Charles Sam Schaefer, on November 9th of 1958 at the First Reformed Church in Evansdale. He died on June 11th, 2013. She worked for the Waterloo School District as the director of payroll for 40 years. Then she worked for Friendship Village in the finance office and officially retired in 2015. She enjoyed and was proud of being a businesswoman in the workplace. Iris was a member of the Grace Reformed Church. She was very generous with her family, sharing her faith and her time, going to her grandchildren's programs. She kept it simple, but kept it disciplined in Grandma's way. Every Sunday, family time was shared after a meal at Grandma's house. She enjoyed her independence after Sam passed away, traveling with her sister and friends. Funeral services for Iris will be at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 17th at Grace Reformed Church at 520 Maxwell Street in Waterloo with burial in the Garden of Memories Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. on Tuesday, January 16th at Lock at Tower Park. Memorials are directed to the family and condolences may be left at www. Dot lockfuneralservices.com. Peter Reinertsen, 74, of Waterloo, died Monday, January 8th, at his residence in Sun Lakes, Arizona. Services for Peter will be at 1 o'clock p.m. Friday, January 19th, at St. John Lutheran Church in Cedar Falls. Visitation will be from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, January 18th, at Lock at Tower Park. 4140 Kimball Avenue in Waterloo, also for one hour prior to services at the church. Visit www.lockfuneralservices.com for more information. Lock at Tower Park is assisting the family. Their phone number is area code 319-233-3146. In an ISU poll, Trump's Iowa lead huge, and unchanged. This column comes from the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. There was no surprise and very little movement in the final Iowa State University civics poll ahead of Monday's first-in-the-nation Iowa Republican caucuses. Just like all the ISU civics polls before it, the final edition, published Thursday, showed former President Donald Trump with a commanding lead over the remainder of the Republican presidential primary field in Iowa. Trump was the top choice of 55% of those surveyed for the ISU civics poll, well clear of the second-place tie between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley at 14% each. Trump's support increased slightly since the December ISU civics poll, while DeSantis's and Haley's support levels dropped slightly. Quote, the biggest news from this is, of course, the stability of this race. Again, not a lot of people are changing their minds. Dave Peterson, Lucan Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University and organizer of the ISU Civics Poll, said in a news release, quote, people who came into this race knowing they wanted Donald Trump to be the nominee, have kept that position the entire time. 
which is about half of the likely caucus goers, unquote. The Iowa State Civics Poll published monthly starting in September. The latest results represent the opinions of 433 registered Iowa voters who said they definitely or probably will participate in Monday's Iowa Republican caucuses. The poll was conducted from January 5th through January 10th and has a margin for error of plus or minus 6.4 percentage points. Hinson's war chest. Republican U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson of Marion announced raising more than $550,000 in the most recent fundraising quarter and has more than $1.4 million cash on hand. Hinson, a former state lawmaker and former KCRG-TV news anchor, is running for a third term representing Iowa's 2nd Congressional District. The district includes Cedar Rapids, Dubuque, Waterloo, and Grinnell. Cedar Falls Democrat and small business owner Sarah Corkery is running to challenge Henson. Corkery, a first-time candidate and two-time breast cancer survivor, launched her bid in October and had not yet announced her campaign halls for the final fundraising quarter of 2023. Under Metro Briefs, here is the Waterloo MLK Junior Day schedule. Dateline Waterloo. In observance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, all city offices will be closed on January 15th. Monday's garbage routes will be postponed to January 16th. No other day of the week will be affected by the holiday and will be picked up on their normal days. Garbage carts must be out by 6 a.m. and not overloaded for proper pickup. Recycling by Republic Services will run as normal. Christmas tree collection will resume on January 16th. Anyone with questions can call the Sanitation Department at area code 319-291-4455. Now we have a guest column written by Amy Lockhart. Iowa's big show is Monday. Iowans have held tremendous influence in the past with their big show, known as the First in the Nation Caucuses. The caucuses are grassroots politics at its best, as Iowan as the butter cow. Besides putting our state in the spotlight, they pump millions of dollars into our economy and afford every citizen between our river borders the opportunity to meet and assess the presidential candidates, who were everywhere. The Republican candidates still are, as their caucus has survived. The Democrats, not so much. This is largely because they bungled the results of the 2020 caucus, trying out a new app to glean additional information. Turned out, it didn't give much information at all, including who the winner was. The world waited and watched and waited some more. But in the end, there were no timely or tangible caucus results to report. So the big show is not as big this year, as roughly half of the prospective caucus goers are not traditionally caucusing. The Democrats are conducting their first-ever mail-in caucus, with the voting beginning in January, the date not yet announced. They will still hold a, quote, traditional caucus, but to discuss party business only. The results of this mail-in caucus will be announced on March 5th, a.k.a. Super Tuesday. 
severely diluting Iowa's influence and basically treating it as one of many primaries that day. Lest Republicans think they are above such snafus, let us remember 2012, when they, too, muddled their reporting and also threatened the legitimacy of Iowa's first-in-the-nation status. They, too, could not declare a winner and waffled between the top two, Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum, who each had garnered around 25% of the vote. In a preliminary report, they first declared Romney the winner. Two weeks later, they announced the contest was, in fact, a draw. After that, they reversed themselves and declared Santorum the winner. What? The rest of the world shook their heads in disbelief. The Iowa GOP then wrote off eight of their precincts' vote counts, memorializing the fact no one will ever know who did actually win. Yet, they held on. And on Monday, January 15th, all registered Republicans will have a chance to again caucus in person. So, what if both parties stepped up big time in this election and turned in definitive and researched results? With or without a caucus, everyone in Iowa and in every state has the privilege of becoming involved, not just in this election, but in all which impacts us and issues and people we care about, engaging in our own life and times, and caring enough to affect positive change in the world, changes it already. What if the Iowans started the swing to another candidate besides the usual suspect? literally in this case, if they endorsed a fresh perspective and gave their first-in-the-nation boost to someone besides the poll's frontrunner, refusing to accept his litany of legal entanglements and seemingly limitless propensity to create chaos. If we were not plunged back into deja vu all over again, and Republicans pushed forward a viable challenger to Joe Biden, one with real answers and a real plan. Nikki Haley would fit the bill. On November 5th, as we vote to choose the best person for arguably the most important job on the planet, let us not have to decide between despot and doddering. Let's show the world those caucus gaffes were aberrations, that we have the judgment and good sense to be entrusted with the job. Let's regain our status as a nation beginning with our state. Iowans are leaders. Let's lead. Amy Lockhart is a parent in Cedar Falls. Federal judge rules in favor of current, former Cedar Falls city officials in PSO lawsuit. Story filed by Andy Malone. Dateline Cedar Falls. A federal judge has ruled in favor of the city officials involved in the 2020 decision implementing the public safety officer model. The civil lawsuit accused seven current and former officials of retaliation in the layoff of one firefighter and intentionally causing distress as part of the transition. In the case brought by former firefighter Scott Dix, U.S. Magistrate Judge Mark A. Roberts last week granted summary judgments sought by Administrator Ron Gaines, Councilmember Daryl Cruz, and former Councilmembers Susan DeBurr, Frank Dara, Mark Miller, and Nick Tabor. The judgment sought by Dix 
was denied. The 42-page ruling comes after months of litigation spurred by Dix's June 21, 2022 complaint alleging three counts of unlawful retaliation in violation of his First Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment rights of speech, association, and petition, as well as one count of intentional infliction of emotional distress. And with that, listeners, we've come to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 15th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of The Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we record. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>